loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired to create a deeper life to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I'm welcoming Boo Patterson. Boo's an award-winning artist, journalist, and creative director based in New York, most commonly known for her strong conceptual and political illustration work. She won an American Illustration Award in 2021 and has been shortlisted in the World Illustration Awards twice. As well as being a regular cultural commentator for the BBC, Patterson and her work has been featured in the media across the globe, including The Guardian, The Week, The Sunday Times, and television and radio. Her fine art has been exhibited at the prestigious Royal Scottish Academy, and she has two books out worldwide. First, Art Kit, 25 Creative Papercraft Remedies for What Ails You, and Paper Cut This Book. And I want to recommend, since Boo's an artist, if you want to go look at her work while we're talking, to go to boopatterson.com. It's B-O-O-P-A-T-E-R-S-O-N.com. Welcome, Boo. Uh, Thank you for having me. I'm very happy to have you. And, you know, I've been doing this now quite a while, eight years, and uh, I love when what has come out of challenge, loss, grief, you know, slash, 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 um, is something, something, you know, a lot of people write books, a lot of people, but your, your response to the challenges in your life is so very unique. And that's so enjoyable to me because we are all individuals, aren't we? Yes. I I mean, I, I guess with each different loss, you kind of grieve in a different way or you use past griefs to um, help you through new grief. And I guess I just kind of want to keep learning. I I feel like I've tried to help a lot of people uh, with their own grief. Um, I feel like I've got something to share about it. And how did that come to be? Because that usually doesn't come from nowhere, right? I think for me, um, my I had a lot of loss uh, in my early twenties. Um, my a couple of my great friends, well, one committed suicide, one died very young. Um, so I, I was more aware than most people my age of grief. And then I, it was in twenty sixteen. I actually I, I lost six people in six months, and mm. it was so kind of confusing to my brain that I actually don't think I grieved half the people and and I think I still haven't I think there's probably years to come where I will grieve them individually later because it was too much for my brain to cope with Um, so I focused on those that um, where one person was uh, dying of cancer so I, I had to be there for them. So I couldn't deal with the kind of sudden grief and the sudden losses. So um, I, I, there was a stage where I ended up thinking that 
you know, my friends who were still alive were about to die. And I, I got a bit paranoid, um, you know, on nights out, um, if I was out with a friend and we got drunk, I was staying at her house, I would wake her up in the middle of the night to check she was still alive, you know. Ah. Um, it, was, it was really quite sad. But, you know, luckily those people were really sympathetic to what I'd been through. And I see it as a form of madness. I went through this kind of, you know, insanity at the time. Um, and then I, I began to develop this kind of weird radar you know, almost like uh, I was expressing this uh, radar where other people who had a great loss recognised it in me, total strangers, and would approach me and tell me that about their loss. Like people at bus stops would come up and say, oh, you know, my husband died. And, and I thought, I'm giving something out. There's something, you know, I, I don't know what it is. So I don't know if you have ever experienced oh, that. Uh absolutely it's a joke in my family oh really uh, yes if, if i do if we're on a trip and i'm the one pumping the gas and let's say my wife and my daughter are with me um they're they'll look at each other and they'll say look there's someone else at the pump she'll know their whole life story before she gets <laughs> back in the car <laughs> so yes that is quite familiar to me and i do think it's something about there's some way we can read people who are not afraid of those places yeah i I'm, i mean i was already an empathic person i think i had you know quite a difficult childhood and um but the huge amount of loss in such a short space of time um made me understand grief in a way that I hadn't in my 20s mm. um, and you, I remember you probably had more resources to yeah, to well, understand I, as well huh well yes in a, in a way that my because my friends were now you know my age at that time it was in my 40s and they um they had more experience of grief so they could help me you know whereas in my 20s people didn't have an experience of grief so uh, one of my friends, he told me the greatest thing that I have ever heard about grief. And um, I've since passed it on to a lot of people. And that is that, you know, when you're in the middle of it, it's going to feel like you are all at sea. You're literally swimming about in a huge ocean and a wave can just come along anytime and knock you over. You're going to feel like you're not going to survive. Um, but while you're being, you know, pulled here and there in the ocean, feeling like there's no one to help you, you've just got to remember that one day you're going to end up on the beach with the sun on your back, looking out at the ocean and unable to believe that you ever survived that. <laughs> so, yes, yeah, so true. Yeah. I use see I use sea images all the time. That's why oh, I'm really? laughing. Uh, you know, there's the, that stage in between where you begin to feel as if you're maybe in a boat. <laughs> you know, yeah, there's some sort of respite. Uh, yes, but, yes. But I, I really, my, it was my friend Jimmy that actually told me that story uh, when my dad died, and I've gone back to it subsequently so many times. And I think it, in the last eighteen months, from the beginning of COVID to now, to just a couple of weeks ago, I lost six people in the eighteen months. 
Uh, uh. three family members including my mum and uh, three really close friends so I it it was strange I actually felt I had a a lot more um wherewithal to get through it I I felt I felt not less grief but I, I did feel a bit stronger because I had I knew I had a lot of resources and I just kept going back to that metaphor that you know this this will pass I'll be on the beach you know, it's interesting, too, because um, as I was mentioning before we got on the air, um, I have been extremely grateful for for any little shred of skill I have. And, I, and I'm not undervaluing myself. I do have a lot of skills when it comes to grief. But in, in this time of COVID, it's a, it's a grievous time for everybody. And then some more than others, like six people dying in that time, right? Yeah. But there's something about not adding to it by resisting it, just saying, oh, yeah, this is, you know, you've just got to put your, you've just got to keep your arms moving, <laughs> you know, basically. Yeah. It's and not respectful. It's not that you miss the people less. No. Um, it's just that you have more internal strength, I think, to cope with it. And you, I think probably, you know, because your brain is plastic, I, I think probably through having had huge loss before, it does make, you, you know, your brain does know that you've encountered it before, that you've survived, that, you know, you had these uh, successful patterns of behaviour that helped you recover. And so I think your brain, you know, actually aids you in it. You know, yeah. and for, with for the, the yes, with the caveat that I've known people who will who would do anything to avoid grief, mm. and um, manage to box it up, and that didn't happen for those people. Right. I've never. Well, I I personally have never done that. I I can't think of anyone I know that's done that. Most people I know are, you know, very um, expressive. So right. I haven't done it, but I, I, I believe you, yeah. yeah there's something about um, you, you, without maybe being fully aware of it, you, it's clear you're a person who, who's geared towards le- learning from your experience. You yes. know, yeah. <laughs> because your book, although it's a book of paper cutting um, suggestions, it's also a book about all the things that you have found helpful in other in other ways of supporting yourself through challenges, correct? Yes, I mean, it's a mix of psychology and craft. So each chapter is a different common psychological problem like, you know, anxiety and insomnia and things like that, all of which I have been treated for. Um, and I... I guess I wanted to make, uh, I I had, uh, before my recent uh, round of therapy finished, um, which was schema therapy, which appears to have been the most successful, um, I had severe depression for most of my life. And I guess what I wanted was a first aid kit for my brain. Mm. I had been going through another big episode of depression uh, and just as I was kind of dragging myself out of it, I realized that, you know, maybe I should write down some of the advice I'd learned from psychologists over the years, just as a kind of cheat sheet, 
you know, to stop myself going back to the depression. So as I started to write it, I thought, oh, I, I should maybe, I'll make a little reminder out of paper of what it is I have to do. Because of course, every time, you know, you try and fix something in your brain, it is work. I mean, it's you have to do the work. You don't just kind of read right. a, an affirmation and it changes. <laughs> <laughs> right. And, and even I, there's this paragraph of yours I want to share where you have fix in quote marks, which I think is perfect because in the end, it's about finding yourself more than fixing yourself, right? But you say, at one fraught crisis point, I decided to fix myself by writing down all the strategies I'd learned in therapy and created paper craft artworks that reminded me of what I've learned in order to help me focus on a way out of my situation. Not only did this help me recover, but it also made me realize that many of my own difficulties were universal. And thus this first aid kit for the soul was born. What I love about that, Boo, is that um, this, this, I have this familiarity now uh, in myself, but in many, many, in about 400 other people of kind of feeling your way along and suddenly um, it comes into focus and you've, you've created something unique. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, it became as a, it came as a flash that when I, I, started to write down the problems and then started to write what the paper cut would be i i said oh it sh it should be it like a look like a vintage first aid kit it should you know th that should be the theme of it and then i knew it would be a book at that point and I became massively enthused to the extent that my of course my depression didn't come back because i had a project <laughs> <laughs> you, yeah. Well, that and that's something you highlight so much that the 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 um, wisdom of the paper cutting is that it immerses you in something that is not the problem, but yes. refers yeah. but refers to the you're not ignoring the problem, but at the same time it's a different it's a different angle, isn't it? Yeah, and I, I hope some of them are quite funny as well. I, I wanted there to be humour, you know, life isn't just one emotion. Um, and so, you know, in, in one about insomnia, there, I was taught this specific uh, trick by a shrink, which is um, you imagine yourself, you're in bed, you can't sleep, you imagine yourself in a white room and uh, you're wearing your favourite clothes and there's a big cardboard box um, empty and you basically off stage, you're pulling all these things off stage that you don't like and are bothering you and you put them in the box. It can be people, it can be words, it can be your boss, whatever. Put them in the box and uh, when you can't think of any more, you walk off and there is a comedy TNT plunger and you blow the box up. <laughs> and then you and it really does work. That it definitely works for me. And so the paper cut is a comedy plunger with the explosion. And I just thought it would be a really cool thing to put on your nightstand to kind of remind you to do that um, exercise. Um, the the other thing though that really stood out, uh, having you know read the whole book and looked at looked at all the examples that you made of the paper cuts. Of course, you've got patterns so people can create their own with their own types of paper and all that is that there's so much beauty and I, and i think just that very idea my my wife is a painter 
um, my second wife is a painter. And when each of her parents has died, she's created a really magnificent piece of art. And I just watch her as an artist, you know, that's her main form is visual. And just watching her do that process is very magical. She's in a different place at the end. Mm. I mean, I I feel exactly the same, even though uh, my political work is, you know, tends to be about horrendous things. So, you know, refugees drowning or the wildfires in America. Um, I do want the artwork itself to be beautiful, because if anything, it sort of says to me that you're salvaging something from a terrible situation. Not only are you drawing attention to the terrible thing, so something might be done about it, but but you're doing that through the medium of beauty. So more people will be attracted to see it. I think if something if, if things look ugly, often people won't look at them. There's a, a type of person that will not look at ugly things that will turn them off. So it's not it's not my it wasn't my thinking. Oh, I must make things beautiful. It just happens to be my aesthetic. Well, I think for me, depth, works of depth are what is beautiful. Mm. Um, And so, you know, yes, there's, I looked at at quite a bit of your um, political work about refugees and all that. And it's partly the poignancy that makes them beautiful. Yes, I mean, you you know, (laughs) I know. And there's a lot of irony in my work as well, which, um, that's how, I think that's, you know, often very specific to illustrators making things deeply ironic so that people kind of get a double whammy. You know, they see the picture, there's an immediate point, but then there's also an ironic point hidden in there, which it kind of is a second blast from the illustrator. So, um, yeah, but, but ultimately, if the works are beautiful and they've got points to them and they can also be poignant, or, you know, whatever you wish to see in them, then I guess my work is done. You've made people feel the thing instead of mm. just just know about it, which yeah, to me... And I, <laughs> yeah, I, and I often think that images stay in your head a lot longer than words do. And, I, mm. you know, as a journalist, you know, I, I love words as well, but it's very difficult to remember a lot of words clearly, um, unless you rehearse them, obviously. Um, so reading a newspaper, you might not, remember the kind of great sentence that you'd read that made you feel something you you just remember you read it in a certain paper but mm. if you see an amazing image it actually seems to imprint itself on the brain a, a lot easier especially i think for people who are visually oriented for yeah. sure yeah let's come back to that after the break it's time for our first break Listeners, you'll find links to my website and social media, the Good Grief page at Voice America, links to Facebook, LinkedIn, et cetera, et cetera. And to find Boo Patterson, go to Boo Patterson. It's B-O-O-P-A-T-E-R-S-O-N dot com. Be back soon. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. 
What sets apart VoiceAmerica.tv from the other video content providers on the Internet? Choice and flexibility means that you can host your video content live or on demand on the main VoiceAmerica.tv channels through your own branded media player or your own private TV channel. We support multiple media formats, so all of your video content can be in one place. We offer a number of advertising and video packages. For more information, visit VoiceAmerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. Be sure to like the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel on Facebook. You'll find great health tips from the experts. Find out more about your favorite shows and talk back to our team. Search Voice America Health or click the like button under the player today. This is Good Grief host Cheryl Jones. Whether you're in grief, crisis, deep loss, or transition, working with the right therapist can move you forward like nothing else. That's why I'm happy to be sponsoring BetterHelp. Their user-friendly platform connects you with a therapist uniquely suited to support you. If you want to know more, follow the link on my host page or go to betterhelp.com slash goodgrief. That's betterhelp.com slash goodgrief and receive a 10% discount for the first month. Listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Boo Patterson, author of First Art Kit. And um, you know this, this uh, what you were just saying about images will stay with you. Uh, I used to consider myself not much of a visual person, very much about words, um, but I um, had very severe cataracts for a while, and I couldn't get them immediately corrected. Boy, did I realize quickly how visual I am. Why? Wow. <laughs> yeah. So even those of us who who are oriented a different way, uh, you know, my ears are kind of my first <laughs> my first stop. But um, even I, uh, when when we were just talking about. Um, you know, images that make you more deeply aware of, of political situations, uh, a bunch of images flashed through my head of, of various um, situations in the course of my life where um, if, I ima- if I remember the image, the whole situation will come back to me. Mm. I mean, I think, yeah, absolutely. And also with smell as well. If I can smell a certain smell, I will go right back to childhood you know Mm. um but yeah images in particular with me I was always a very visual child and so um I think that was I I just learned to express myself that way and specifically out of paper um because my dad uh was an author was he was a fireman but they only worked three or four days a week so he was an author the other times Mm. and obviously doing it on a typewriter then so he had a lot of scrap paper from chapters that didn't work. 
and they were all put in a cardboard box for me to play with. <laughs> so, that, that, <laughs> oh my gosh, it's your first toy. <laughs> yeah, that, that's how you got children to entertain themselves in the seventies. <laughs> so, um, I was just left with kind of crayons and the box of paper. That's so interesting because I do find watching my my grandchildren there there's extra work that has to go into activating their creative spirits because there's so much stuff available that's pre pre-done, right? That's already finished in a way that, that um the toys they interact with are not always that creative. No, and and also they seem to be this is, I think the problem is they tend to be attention grabbing and that's exactly what you don't want. You want, I think, uh, not just children, but people to feel boredom to, so that they have reflection. I think without reflection, we just constantly distract ourselves from grief, from any worries at all, um, and consequently get burned out. So the whole point of the book, in a way, is actually to create a flow state with people, which adults rarely experience, but children are in a lot of the time through play. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, doing anything that involves a great de degree of uh, concentration will put you in a flow state. And so all these different chapters, the exercises, well, not even exercises, the, the makes, they are all different a lot of some of them take an hour or two hours some of them take you know 15 minutes and so i wanted to give people a range of things like even if you know you don't have insomnia you could still make the little plunger um because it's an enjoyable thing to do in itself and so that was a, another thing a, a thought behind it was i wanted it to be a good gift for people who mm wouldn't necessarily have a big conversation with their friend about, I think you need help. You know, a lot of people still find it very embarrassing and shameful to mention therapy. So, or, or the fact that they're not working and, and, you know, mentally, you know, high capacity all the For time. Sure. And then, so, and then add, you know, actually grief is not a disorder. It's no. a natural response, but people still do the same thing to themselves. Yes, and somehow that grieving, you know, that you should be ashamed of it and it's abnormal and you should keep it inside. And, and, and so in doing the book, I wanted to open up a conversation and it is getting better these days. There is more talk about mental health, although I don't think there's anywhere near enough uh, talk about grief that there is. No, but it's in, it's in. It's improved in the time I've been doing this work. Yes, definitely. there's much more, much more talk. You were making me think about my youngest kid who tended to get bored a lot because she has a very fast mind. And she would come to us as a very little kid and say, I'm bored, you know, and we'd say, good, you're about to get creative. She hated, <laughs> she, she hated that, but it was true. It if, true. if we didn't do anything about that, she would go invent something, right? Mm. <laughs> just to just to go forward herself. And uh, some of some of her really beautiful moments came from not interrupting boredom. Exactly. <laughs> so you made me remember that. Yeah, you do move past boredom into a state where you think, oh, okay, so what do I want to do? You know, how do I want to solve the boredom? But but I also think a lot of people mistake. 
uh, they, well, they confuse boredom with reflection. And in fact, the re reflection itself makes them feel uncomfortable mm. because they don't want to um, deal with certain situations in their lives. So rather than, you know, think about it, they d make themselves be distracted Distract. constantly. Yeah. You know, yeah. that's why, you know, Twitter is great for that sort of thing. You know, you can constantly It be can be for sure. Well, it's, it's great as a distraction device, all social media is. But I, 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 I'm advocating that you, if you want to feel mentally healthy, you take time out and do things that are slow. Not, not necessarily my book, but, but just do any creative endeavour. And, and this book is specifically for people who say that they're not creative and they can't do art. Yes, I, I'm glad you're saying that because that seems so important to me. You don't have to rub up, rub up against I'm not an artist. No. Because it doesn't have that kind of, um, it kind of reminds me of when I used to do sand tray with, with clients. Like mm. you can put figures in a, in a tray of sand without having to be an artist. Yeah. But meanwhile, you're creating a picture. I wanted to give people an example um, so they can, if they're not going and looking, like, uh, for instance, a, a section where you were talking about exercise, you said daily exercise is an important strategy in degre decreasing anxiety as concentrating on physical movement can give you some respite from being solely in your head. Mm -hmm. It can also help you to write down what triggers your anxiety so that you can begin to notice patterns and take steps to tackle them before they get out of hand. At the same time, you should also note the good things in your life and make efforts to increase the amount of time you spend on activities that bring you joy. But then what I wanted to especially comment on is that the art piece that went with that section was a, um, a cutout of a beach scene, and of course, that same pattern could make many beach scenes. That's what I was aware of, you know, depending on the colors and how you how you scrunched it up and everything. But it created the thing you were talking about. You know, it, it referenced the thing you were talking about. Because mm. what do you do at a beach? You swim, you walk the beach, you know, you do yeah. physical things. Yes? Absolutely. And also you tend to reflect because you're looking at the sea, you're looking at the beautiful view. Um, with that one in particular, that was one of the ones that I made to be really super easy so that, you know, the person who said, oh, I just literally can't do any art at all could do this. And um, I, I find these particular, uh, you know, thinking of something beautiful can be a lovely way to take yourself out of boredom for a start um, and there are also exercises later on in the book that are tied to a beach as well mm. so there is a bit of a and I think it's maybe quite common in psychology actually of the the, the beach metaphor well you were just talking about the ocean too yeah, and, that, and that, so it's yeah. a reference for you as well. Yes, yeah. something and important, other, important yeah, to and, you. And also, is, did, did Freud not say that the, the water represents your subconscious and dreams and things like that? I think there there might be some sort of psychological link. I'm not a therapist, so I wouldn't. You know, no, I think there's some it, truth. But. I think there's some truth to that. I, I'm um, geared towards everyone's system of meaning is a little different. 
And so I tend to wait and see what the person says <laughs> about, uh, you know, their dream or their, their um, epiphany or whatever it is. But yes, I think water, that, that kind of sen uh, sense of descending into a watery landscape is kind of subterranean. Yeah, and and like we were saying before, it can be terrifying or it can be really pleasurable. If it's the beach you're on, it can be really pleasurable or swimming in the warm sea. But then yeah. equally, if you're in the sea and you're being tossed about and hit by waves, absolutely horrendous. Yes, <laughs> that's so true. So, you know, I, I'm very interested in in what leads us to where we go. And uh, I'm aware that you didn't have an easy early life. Mm -hmm. And then you, you left and joined the circus, which yeah. most of us don't know someone who's actually done that. <laughs> it's more, more metaphoric. Uh, and then that, that evolved to where, where you are with this, which is a very quiet activity, um, quite different from, I would think, um, you know, being a ringleader at a circus. But I'm imagining there is a line that connects all those dots for you. There is. There is. I, a lot of people have commented on my many careers, um, but I see them as all the same in a way because they're all about creativity. Mm. And even though um, illustration is, you know, a solitary activity, um, that doesn't mean I am not incredibly gregarious in real life. So they're all parts of um, ring mastering is, I mean, you would have to be gregarious to do that job. It's, there's no other way to do it. Um, you're in control, you're in basically in charge of the audience. So you're barking them in, you're getting them to sit, you know, 400 people to sit down in five minutes. And <laughs> Um, you're stopping them getting on stage with the performers, which happens more than you would expect. And, and so it can be, it is obviously, very, it's a very stressful job because it's not just that hour that the show is on. And usually there are about five shows a night anyway. Um, but it's, you know, if you're with the circus, you build the circus, you are the venue manager, you are the production manager, you you know, uh, I, I did all the publicity for the circus. So you're really working a minimum of 18 hours a day with no days off. Mm. And so- Exhausting. When, oh, it, I mean, it's, in a way, it's perfect for people with terrible childhoods because it not only um, involves the kind of high rate of perfectionism um, and the, insane work ethic that comes from people people pleasers um, but it's also a great distraction for people who have other kind of profound worries in their life mm. so there are a lot of people like me at the circus in fact I think it's mostly damaged people who were damaged as children in fact mm. and so it probably isn't that surprising actually uh, anyway, the I, I ran away with them because I had been a music manager for years, and I knew I knew the owner of the tent. Um, 
it, it was the 1920s Spiegel tent that, that Marlena Dietrich sang in in the 30s, and he had uh, he had you know needed a publicist in Edinburgh Festival when I was back from New York on tour in Scotland, and so I ended up I ended up doing his publicity. But naturally, as being a people pleaser, you end up doing everything. <laughs> so, I can I do that. Yeah, I'll do I, that. Yeah, Let not, me do that. Not, not even that thing. Just, just, you just go ahead and do it. If a job oh, yeah. needs done, you do it. You know? And also, I, I partly grew up on a farm where that is very much the philosophy as well. You, know, you work collectively, but also individually. And if something looks like it needs done, you just do it. You don't ask somebody, does that need done? You, know, you don't take direction that way. So circus is very like farming and also the audiences are like cattle. So there's another metaphor. <laughs> So, but I, so. I also could imagine it's it's a kind of, I mean, I suppose it depends what circus you're a part of, but I could imagine it being incredibly bonded and familial. Yeah, it, I mean, there's a kind of a regular saying amongst my old crewmates and I that even if we didn't do the same gig, in other words, we were at different festivals, but we met later, we would say that we were in different battles in the same war because we all, it's, it's a kind of war, you know, when you hear old soldiers talking about, you know, they, they, those are my greatest friends that I ever had. Mm, yes. It's the same sort of thing. You know, you're under duress. You need to trust people. As, it, like as soon as you meet them, you don't have time to make, you know, have formal friendships. You have to just become their best friend straight away because they have to have your back. And you find out very quickly who are your lifelong friends and who aren't. And, you know, That's not... Not no, everyone wants your back, but but you end up really relying on and becoming that kind of friend too, those that are those kind of people. That really resonates for me. Uh, a friend of mine just died a few days ago who was a part of our support community when my wife was sick. Mm -hmm. And it caused me to think about the depth of those relationships. Mm. Uh, it was a very long time. That was one thing. But it, it was a very consistent group of people over that very long time. And similarly, those are, um, if I never see those people again, they are in my heart in a yeah. very deep way. Yeah, and they'd Let's, probably be there for you. Yeah, well, for each other, for sure. Mm. It's time for our second break. Let's come back and talk more about that when we're, when we're through with the break. Um, you can go to weatheringrief.com to find me. And to find Boo Patterson, go to boopatterson.com. Back soon. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. Healthcare has been a major part of news stories today with one thing that has been consistent inconsistency. Both healthcare providers and patients have to work around and get used to a constantly changing set of rules and issues. Nurses have historically been left out of this decision making. Listen to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, exploring the world of nursing with host Leanne Meyer. Health professionals, we invite you to share your ideas and experiences while listening to experts in various areas of nursing. Listen Mondays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health and Wellness. 
Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back to Good Grief. This is your host, Cheryl Jones. I've been talking with Boo Patterson about her book, First Art Kit. And Boo, before the break, you know, we were kind of talking uh, more in relationship to your circus experience about these bonds that form in our deep times. Uh, I was talking about our, uh, my first wife and my support community, the circus, where you're working 18 hours a day intensely. Uh, grief communities sometimes are that way, right? Very, very, there's an intensity to it. And uh, then I was thinking during the break and really wanted to talk with you about this. So there's been a lot more isolation in the last 18 months. I know that you are not even, you haven't even been where you usually live in New York. No. Uh, and and for myself, um, you know, I've been working entirely on Zoom. Uh, up until after the vaccines happened, I was basically seeing two or three people for the entire time, which is unusual uh, because my wife is from a big family. It's been a really, um, to navigate challenge in a certain amount of isolation, I've found to be somewhat difficult for me, and I'm good at navigating challenge. How has that been for you? I, I would say the same as you. I, you know, flattered myself that I was very resilient. You know, I've had 23 years of therapy. I have had horrendous experiences in my life and survived them. And yet within a month of complete solitary confinement, which is what we had in the UK. Uh, we had that for four months. I started to break down. I just, I can't describe it any other way. I just mm. went into, I could feel myself on the precipice of depression mm. and was about to spiral down. Uh, a friend of mine who used to be a shrink, she kind of dragged me out of that one. Um, and then I kind of kept, but for the you know at least six months, uh, actually maybe eight months, of the from the first lockdown, I would I had about three serious episodes. I, I just I couldn't control it, and I I just realised that you know I as an incredibly gregarious person, you know that is my human beings are my milk, like just having human interaction, um, and. I really coped badly with it. I, I did go back to some of the things that I talk about in the book, like, you know, I would go on massive, you know, six mile walks just to get my serotonin up, um, which again did work. Uh, but, you know, it's a lot to do a six mile walk. <laughs> um, and, and to have all of the, um, you know, whether you pull out of it or not, be so dependent on yourself. Yes. But the other point was that, you know, for the first uh, 
four months, I think, I can't even remember now, in the UK, we were only allowed out of the house for one hour a day. Mm. And and so we were properly locked down. You literally could not leave your house. You had one hour a day to exercise and that was it. And so it was really stressful. I mean, I am a kind of person that's outside all the time. You know, I'll go for, you know, two or three walks a day and cycle for 10 miles. I'm really, you know, energetic. And I found this, you know, prison-like experience just, just awful. And so I did kind of come out of it when my therapy had stopped for the four months. They weren't allowed to treat any patients. Um, and then when it restarted on Zoom, uh, you know, then I was getting support and I started to feel, you know, more. Wow, that's an amazing thing you just told me, because what happened in my work is that the first week we were locked down, not as extremely as you, as it turns out, but we were pretty pretty much completely locked down. The first week, a lot of people canceled. I immediately switched to Zoom. Mm. A lot of people canceled the first week. By the second week, people were calling I hadn't seen in a long time to come back. Well, this was NHS, of course. So the NHS canceled all psychology departments and they, were not, they weren't even allowed to use Zoom. They, it was only GPs that were allowed to have Zoom. Obviously it has to be an encrypted special type of Zoom. And mm-hmm. um, so they, they were, and I, I, I still don't know what happened to, you know, the severe psychiatric patients. Oh you know. my gosh, because that's such an incredibly long time, yeah. right at a moment where, you know, you <laughs> people, everyone was so challenged. That kind of yeah. breaks my heart. Yeah, it was absolutely horrendous. And I did write to them to actually say, you know, what happened to the properly, you know, you know, not that me being suicidal isn't a proper mental illness, but, you know, the people who have psychosis or, you know, bipolar, you know, what what's happened to them? And they didn't actually answer it. I, I, I think they were left too, but because apparently they were all taken off all um, psychology duties and they were reused uh, in the NHS in different ways, like, I don't know, taking bloods or whatever, blood pressure. Um, wow. Or yeah. I'm, I'm sure some of the MDs were switched to COVID patients. Well, exactly. So everyone else had to do their duties, you know, so everyone got switched up a notch, but all psychology was cancelled. It was really traumatic. <laughs> Be in the middle you know, of therapy and have it cut ah, off. Ah, ah, I can't even begin. Uh, the, the last segment I wanted to highlight is an ironic twist on what we're talking about. It's uh, the section on bullies, because that, that almost feels bullying, doesn't it? <laughs> you yeah, know, yeah. <laughs> it's like no word at all, shut it down. <laughs> and there's no, you say bull, bullies hate exposure. So the best way to deal with them is to tell others what's been going on. Mm-hmm. But, but if you can't talk to people, who do you tell? If you're being bullied at work, human resources professionals often recommend you have a trusted confidant witness the bullying and log any interactions that highlight it. But never tell bullies how bad they make you feel. Bullies gain pleasure from your powerlessness, and doing this may encourage them to bully you more. A heartbreaking truth. What I particularly loved about that, though, is the kind of creative flair of what the paper cut is, because 
You quote Eleanor Roosevelt, no one can make you feel inferior without your consent, and the paper cut is Eleanor Roosevelt. Yeah. I, I can just imagine that that would, you know, as we were saying, the image connects to the, the underlying idea. Yeah. Or would you then look at that without feeling that a little bit? Yeah, and also it's it's humorous, you know, it's a paper doll of Eleanor Roosevelt. So, you know, <laughs> she can be sitting on your desk reminding you, or I thought you could use her as a bookmark and things like that. Or you can make her a whole collection of clothes, you know. Um, In so, my world, you might make a second one of her quote unquote best friend. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I, I, I wanted, with all the, the, the crafts, I wanted it to be a very uh, immediate and obvious connection to what you had just read. And that quote from Eleanor has actually stayed with me for about 25 years when I was being horrendously bullied. I was, I was bullied in most of my uh, journalism jobs. And so um, I, I, re I remember reading that a really long time ago and and just thinking, but how do I not give consent? You know, mm, I just yes. work it out. And it's only actually uh, since I have finished schema therapy that I realized all those things I've said in that chapter are true. Those are the, the ways that you deal with them. However, you never feel strong enough to do that until you have uh, your self-esteem is high enough. So you actually need to do your self-esteem first before you can do the deal, you know, deal with the bully. Yes. And, and, you know, my only hesitation about that statement is that parents can make children feel inferior without their consent. Oh, absolutely. I mean, right. So, so that's the exception and that lays the groundwork for thinking that's an okay way to feel. Right. But, but, you know, you're mentioning parents and that's, you know, I was bullied by my father. So I think actually parents who bully their children are actually creating bullying victims for the future because it meant that I learned to be bullied. I didn't value uh, my needs. And it was only in yes. realizing that my needs were important that I suddenly went, oh, this is actually, oh, I see that people don't just don't bully you when you realize your needs are important. <laughs> anyway. Well, and then on the, on the other hand, I do think that it's the same thing that creates bullies. Yeah. Well, and by and large. I mean, I, with bullies, I always thought they had very poor self-esteem. But actually, I'd, in my research, I found out that their self-esteem is actually high. And they were often told as children that they were, you know, special, special little moonbeams, but, but, you know, too much. And it, it turned yes. into tyrants. I, I hear what you're saying, but I think uh, if someone is, is, is lifted up like that and there's actual love going on, Oh, yes. Then yeah. they don't turn into bullies, <laughs> you know. There has to be um, it has to be sort yeah. of impersonal almost, or yeah. we can think of examples in our recent history oh. <laughs> in this country for sure. But What was his know. name again? <laughs> <laughs> he who shall not be named will just say. Try to forget. 
<laughs> I, I try not to go too political, but I think I think it's fair to say that a lot of people uh, in this country felt bullied is what we felt um, for the last several years. And well, and and in his history, he was bullied by exactly. his own dad. Yes. So, so it's, you know, lifted up and bullied. We're better than everybody. And I treat you like crap. Yeah. You know, so I mean, a lot of, of therapists have, uh, we're, we're admonished not to ever try to figure out someone's psychology unless they're our client. Uh, but a lot of people needed, in my profession, needed to try to understand what was happening. Mm. And, and I do think that that is where a lot of people came out, that combination. Uh, Not just in your profession. <laughs> <laughs> I know, it was pretty, it was pretty rampant, which, yeah. you know, we can never know, but <laughs> in any case. <laughs> I, I, I googled narcissists a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you know, I know that you got stuck away from your home and now you're about to go to go home. So that yeah. may be at least an approach to the shore, do yeah. you think? Oh, oh. <laughs> I'm so overjoyed. I, I mean, I've, I've literally been stranded here for two years and uh, I am now getting to go back to New York and my resume my life uh, with all the people I love. So. Yeah, and promote your book in a in a more in a more usual way, yeah, perhaps. direct, <laughs> meeting actual people in an actual yeah, yeah. room. Yeah, yeah my lifeblood. <laughs> I mean, I I've since I, you know, interview so many authors, everybody had to convert, and I have a feeling we may we may be looking at a hybrid because there were some things that were different and good about that. You know, mm. I went to several book readings that were nowhere near my home. Mm. And, uh, but, I, but I'm hoping that'll go to a model of, you know, somebody's uh, streaming Zoom while everyone's in the room together <laughs> or some, yeah. some sort of thing. I know the choir I'm in is planning on that, to have yeah. a both and now that we know how to do the Zoom thing, which was well, very hard especially, to learn. Especially for people with, you know, disabilities, it's great to have both, you know, often Absolutely. people don't get out. So I, I, I prefer to have this hybrid model. I think it's a good idea. I think so too. And we're, we're going we're gonna to find out, because sometimes you don't know the nature of the sand of the beach you're lying on for some time. No. <laughs> so I think we're we're headed into a period of examination of where we've landed, do you think? Yeah, and, and often you just don't even know which beach it is. You just don't know yeah, which country, I don't know. <laughs> Boo, I've really enjoyed talking with you today. Thanks so much Thank for you. being here. Thank and you. good luck on your travels home. Thank <laughs> you. Next week I'll have Lee Tomlinson, author of Compassion Heals from Self-Care to Healthcare. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.